Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Welcome, everybody. This is Brandon talking right now. I have two Dans with me today, which is exciting. Yeah, I like it. The normal Dan. Dan Norton. <laughs> the, Dan, the Dan that's always here. The Dan, yeah. that's the, I'm not sure I like the implication. <laughs> that's the Dan you're going home with every week. You, you, you always get that Dan. But, yeah. but this week, we got some bonus Dan. Yeah. His name's Dan White. Hey, everybody. So, uh, explain to our, uh, our readers what exactly your significance is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one, so many people say like, well, surely a day, one Dan is enough, but they are incorrect. It's true. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, let me start by saying that I'm a little bit nervous, guys, because I have listened to all released podcasts, and I think it's fair to say that I am your biggest fan. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so can we start with some autographs? You're breathing yeah. rarefied air <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah. Who am I? I'm Dan White. I'm the CEO here at Filament Games. I'm a founding partner, Filament Games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I guess I've, I've been in this magical journey since day one, right, with Dan and Alex. And before beginning this journey, uh, I was working at a place called the Cornell Theory Center out east. And... We were making informal science museums, so like virtual science museums. You could go online and you could learn about science in a virtual science museum. And they were terrible. They were they were uh, <laughs> they were very primitive. Uh, we had some NSF funding to sort of experiment with the technology. We were working in active worlds technology. For anybody who's familiar with that, if you are, then you will now be groaning in pain if you had to work with that technology at all. And basically, uh, yeah, we, we did some testing on uh, like boys and girls club kids, 4-H kids, and other hapless subjects. Um, but the thing was, they absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. They loved it. It was super primitive, uh, but they loved it. And so, you know, that, of course, got the wheels spinning in my head thinking, wow, this is, this is terrible, but it's still good. So what happens if we make it good? Then it might be great. I ask myself every episode <laughs> of the podcast <laughs> that very same question. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the journey from there went to uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So I did did a graduate program here at UW, all right, mm-hmm. and uh, then started working at the uh, at the uh, ADL, ADL academic collab, collab, which is for for those of for those of you who have listened since day one, will know that that's uh, where our journey began. That's where that's I met right. Dan and Alex. All right, that's right. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about, as I'm curious about every week, it's like, what are you playing right now? Yeah. Oh. oh. What are you gaming? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, we're starting to oh, lose. Oh boy. Lucy goosey. You know, th- this this would in other circumstances be an awkward question because I don't have a lot of time for video games these days, but right now I am playing the heck out of XCOM. Yeah. The original. No, Our, well, I'm X- sorry. Yeah, wait, yeah, yeah. The there's, there's a lot of whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so the, the <laughs> so XCOM 2 was recently released. So I mean XCOM 1. I see. Original. I never played the original. And uh, so this is, I believe, called XCOM Enemy Unknown. Mm-hmm. I think that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. And um, yeah, so Fraxis has the ability to create this certain brand of crack that for some reason goes straight to my brain. Mm-hmm. And um, I was talking with you about this the, the other day, Brandon. I, over tacos. I have a, yes, over tacos, uh, over, over half-price tacos, <laughs> no less. And uh, turns out that... Um, I get really excited about games that involve 
flanking strategy. Hmm. And and I was and as I said that out loud, it was very mystifying to me because I don't understand why <laughs> that particular mechanic is so satisfying. Why to do my I brain. love flanking why so much? Flanking is so satisfying. Yeah. To me. I, I, don't know I just why. can think of you like in a game store as if those existed. Like in a game store, turning around the box, it just says like one of the bullets Sold. flanking. Like, oh boy. <laughs> So if either of you, so I guess, yeah, if, if you can figure out, if you can peer into my brain and understand the cognition behind my love of flanking, I would, I would, I would be grateful. Well, I mean, as, as you know, White, one of my hobbies is, is peering into your brain. Yes, um, I do. <laughs> uh, perhaps, uh, well, I mean, so flanking is obviously one of many satisfying military strategies that involve planning positioning and in some cases subterfuge yeah so i do you find lots of military strategy do you like uh do you like surrounding or collapsing or revealing hidden troops Hmm. uh or is it really just the flank (laughs) i guess i just like the flank just the flank yeah well that's uh that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of want to flank you right now. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and in well, many ways, bit, yeah. in many ways, you are indeed flanking him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I'm. Is this a metaphor? Maybe like. Well, that's the thing. I'm like trying to figure out what. Well, so what else is satisfying about flanking? Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> All of my enemies out there, be warned. Be warned. I will suppress you. Yeah. Thank you. And you won't even see it coming. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah. Unless you can look left or right. I mean, mean, at the last moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) When it's too late. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, that gives us some insight into Dan White's arbitrary video game tastes. <laughs> wow, I'm I'm grateful that we put him in the center of our interview setup. So yeah, none true. of us, yeah, it's our flanking true. chances have been minimized. It's true. Is this going well? Was that weird? No, that was good. Okay, yeah, no, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. I feel yeah. like I outed myself. Yeah, <laughs> Dan White's a flanker. <laughs> <laughs> An unapologetic, an unapologetic flanker. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, you know, the history of, of game-based learning, because what I'm interested to hear is, you know, from, from two of the co-founders being in the room, um, kind of how the Filament Games mission has evolved throughout the years. Um, I know we've just recently trotted out a new mission. I'm not going to say what it is, because that would be a spoiler for the next 10 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we started with, I think... You know, a similar mission in mind, but it's been refined over the course of the years, and there's been you know multiple kind of phases of that. Um, so I, that's what I would like to hear about from you today. All right. Yeah. So you know, take us back to the collab. You you took a kind of surveyed the land, looked at the landscape back okay. then, and we're like, well, I need to change something. Both of you were like that, presumably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, okay. what did you do? Sure. Well, uh, as I recall. Dan Norton had just finished making the original filament logo. That's right. And which is emblazoned upon one of my favorite t-shirts, but I still have that. Oh, nice. T-shirt. Very nice. It's, it's well worn, but yeah. <laughs> I love that t-shirt. Um, so you'd, you'd just finished making that logo and we started brainstorming 
slogans because these are the things that you do when you found a company. The most right, important, the most things, important you know, things, logo, <laughs> slogan, business cards. Yep. Um, a business plan comes far. Oh yeah. After. That's way after. Yeah, that's <laughs> so much less important. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the slogan that we came up with was educational games that don't suck. And that served us well for many years, uh, because, um, a lot of educational games at the time and still to this day suck. Yep. Right. Or, or games calling themselves educational games. Now I would argue that a lot of those games are not actually educational games. They're just candy coded multiple choice questions. However, um, that was, that was the original intention. And, uh, we would have been satisfied had we done nothing else other than create a game uh, that had legitimate educational purpose and did not suck. Uh, like a game that we would actually want to play ourselves. And so that is what we set out to do. And Dan Norton told you the story on the original podcast, I believe it was, about uh, how we then went on to create Resilient Planet and then ended up working with Jason, mm-hmm. the Jason Project, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so fast forward um, a number of years, and uh, it started to get a little bit awkward to use the word suck when we were in client calls as a, as a, as a more upstanding professional, uh, <laughs> still pre-marketing you know, studio. <laughs> so we still, we still said inappropriate things all the time, but mm-hmm. we started to become a little bit more self-aware, right? And we changed our slogan to uh, learning games that shine uh, as so a play. Nice. Yeah, right? Isn't mm-hmm. that nice? Yeah. Um, and, you know, learning games that shine was a slogan that, that served us well for a number of years. The problem with it uh, was that um, it doesn't really say anything about why we do what we do or what we're actually trying to accomplish besides making learning games, right? And so I guess that's, that's what I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about today. Like why, why do we actually make learning games and what impact do we think learning games have when they're executed well uh, and when they're distributed successfully? So, you know, very early on, so let's, let's go back to Resilient Planet. So after we created Resilient Planet, we did a whole bunch of testing in a DC school district. And I will never forget how uh, the kids lit up when, when they started playing that game. But more importantly, so we always care about transfer. We care about longitudinal impact. We care about what kids do after the game and how it impacts their lives after they play the game. And we followed up with the, the teachers that we tested with uh, several weeks after the uh, the implementation of the game. And they went on at length about how the students had, of their own volition, uh, gone onto the internet and done research about the things that they had done in the game and uh, basically wanted to continue the affinity that they had developed in the game uh, into other spaces outside the game. So classroom discussions, internet research, et cetera, further reading. Um, and to us, that was that was the moment that that was one of the moments that crystallizes for me. I think what it means to be successful when you make a learning game, and that is uh, when you create an experience that inspires somebody uh, to do something that they otherwise would not have had they not played the game, and that that thing that they do uh, actually improves their life in some meaningful way. Right. So for me, at that point, that became the mission. Now I would say tangentially to that. Uh, we, the other thing that we saw and still see consistently when we play test the games in schools is we see the students who typically struggle with the system as it is not only being engaged but thriving, 
right? And that is that is a very satisfying thing. And we witness it firsthand. And then, of course, the teachers always tell us, and the teachers have the best line of sight on how the student's behavior has changed as a result of the of the implementation. And those teachers come up to us and they say, so-and-so, you know, I, I've always had a difficult time getting this particular student or these particular students to engage in the material, to engage in the discussions, to engage with the class, to engage with the learning. And um, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm speaking as a teacher now, I'm looking at a totally different student right now as they engage with this game. Um, so that's, that's obviously very fulfilling as well. When you, when you think back you know, along the line of that evolution, I think at some point there it's, it's fair to say that um, educational technology kind of had a massive impact on, on what the actual implementation or adoption of this would look like, right? So like there were a lot more personal computing devices available to students um, and, and kind of, I'm curious to know how that impacted you guys sort of like in that, you know, 2010 to 2013 timeframe when devices really kind of hit the, hit their stride in terms of just being, you know, propagated out into the marketplace and, and how that had an impact on your strategy. Hmm. That's interesting. I think, um, while we've been doing this. I've never felt like in any given month that there was some stable moment where mm-hmm. platform was fixed where we could make great decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, Filament was founded a lot on initially rolling out into uh, classroom labs with, you know, tower machines. Yep. I remember when we made Resilient Planet, it was revealed to us that our clients tested our game on a laptop cart and we were freaking out because there was no, we were like, there's no way this game's going to run on those laptops. And it did. It, it didn't run butter smooth, but it worked. Um, so uh, those were our original assumptions. And uh, we started, then we moved towards Flash for web-based deployment because that was what the kids were into. Uh, you know, <laughs> All the kids. All the kids with their plugins. Doing the Adobe Flash. Yeah, they're doing the Flash. <laughs> um, do you remember Albino Black Sheep? Anyway, I mean, sorry. Vaguely. Yeah, it was a repository for the things that kids were doing with Flash, more uh, or less. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, uh, so I don't know. When, it, when I think back, I don't see like a... Even today, the contemporary policies about how schools use mobile are contentious and in flux, right? Yep. You know, the bring your own device is a thing, but certainly not an evenly... Even inside that policy, there's way different ways to treat it. Yeah, at, you know, BYOD as bring your own device yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is to in my mind um, sort of a a petri dish for conflict because that's where you really start to see the equity issues come mm-hmm, on it's mm-hmm. like if 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 your student population does not have uniform wealth which i don't i don't know any student population that does um byod quickly falls apart which is why i think one-to-one is superior but also of course puts the burden of cost on the on the administration right um which is less appealing to the administration. <laughs> yes, they're less excited. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to answer your question, Brandon, because I don't feel like we even have a... We never settled on like, ah, yes, this is the way to do it. Sure. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I think in my experience, what we do is we work to accommodate those trends as they emerge, but mm-hmm. we don't kind of... We don't put all of our chips no. <laughs> on, on one particular number because, you know, these things come and go. Yep. I think if you'd asked me three to four years ago what the dominant platform would be in school today, I would have said iPads. Mm-hmm. But now I would not say that. I would say it's Chromebooks. Mm-hmm. And who knows what I'm going to say two years from now. Yeah. Maybe something completely unrelated to education. I don't we know. Had a, we had a salient lesson uh, in 
well, really sort of surrounding this issue of hardware and, and uh, how games and how games get into the classroom based on what hardware they have when we launched Resilient Planet because it was a download and install game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very difficult for schools to download and install things because of administrative privileges, et cetera. Yep. Uh, so immediately afterwards, we created our first Flash game with the Jason Project, which was Coaster Creator, uh, which was a fraction of the budget and scope, uh, and yet very quickly dwarfed Resilient Planet in terms of the number of plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was uh, it was so easy to access. Basically, you went on the web, you went to the correct URL, and you were playing the game. Yep. And uh, and that that is why. So people sort of look back in awe at uh, the the sort of the rise and fall of Flash. And in retrospect, it's like, why was Flash ever popular, ever used uh, in institutional education? Why was it so dominant? It's 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 not the greatest technology, but it, it was because it was the first technology that just made it so darn simple to uh, quickly get to interactive content. Mm-hmm. So I would like to also spend a little bit of time picking apart um, what our current mission is. So we've kind of talked about how we had, you know, originally learning games that don't suck, then learning games that shine. Um, I think mm-hmm. we also, we encapsulate it in uh, real games, real learning currently, mm-hmm. but that's really the tagline. Um, Let's talk about that tagline for a okay, minute. Let's can, do we, that. Can, we, can we pause there? Yeah. So real games, real learning um, I, is... Is uh, here's what it means to me. You know, so I talked before about how uh, you know when we founded the company, kind of drill and skill games, drill and skill apps masquerading as games were sort of the status quo. Can you define drill and skill? For uh, sure, the, for the readers. Uh, sure. Home? So, like, if I if I if I put in front of you a game where um, I ask you to solve multipl- multiplication problems, and if you correctly solve the multiplication problem, your spaceship moves forward, and if you solve it more than the other players, uh, then you win the space race. Right. Got it. That's an example of a drill and skill game. So basically, I am drilling you on a particular skill. It's a very flat skill. Um, it's usually some kind of declarative knowledge as opposed to procedural, which is the, the knowledge embodied of, of, in the performance of a task. And that knowledge is usually separated from any, any authentic context in which it would actually be useful. Um, is that, do you have anything to add to that, Dan? Is that a... No, I think that's fair. I think um, one thing that did occur to me, you know, drill and skill in many ways is obviously, yeah, it, it describes a, a short and sort of aborted attempt to like integrate learning objectives with mechanics. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, we know how to give a quiz and we know how to, you know, we know what, we know what a game sort of roughly looks like (laughs) is sort of, you know, how, when I think of the, those terms of the most contempt, but, uh, if you want to talk about like multiple choice gussied up, I mean, something that I always think about is like mass effect is, Mm -hmm. is a gussied up multiple choice. Hmm. Right. That's true. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. It's uh, and so and not not to say that's not to uh, diminish Mass Effect. Mass Effect's a wonderful game, mm-hmm. right? And so I guess that you know, the core of the use of those types of mechanics of of choice mm-hmm. uh, or repetition are used all the time in things that are also great experiences. I right. think what really differentiates our strategy from what I guess we were, we would call a drill and skill approach is that authentic skill like can we make actual interesting problems that the player can get better at are the things that you actually experience in the game speaking to the objectives in an authentic way beyond just retention 
And those are those we, we consider those big wins. Uh, if we can integrate those types of mechanics. And, and actually, I don't I do think there is a place and time for a drill and skill. I don't think, you know, learning your multiplication tables is inherently evil. Um, it's just not the pinnacle of education from our perspective, right? It's it's maybe maybe part of the foundation. Um, so anyway, it, it, and I guess I would go even further and say that, you know, when we think about game technology and we think about drill and skill mechanics, it just feels like a waste of the medium, right? It sort of mm-hmm. feels like a, a nuclear fly swatter. Right. It's, it's just overkill, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, so, so basically, you know, when we talk about real games, we're talking about games that you would play as a gamer um, and enjoy in the way that you would enjoy as a gamer enjoys games, which I, I don't think you could make that claim about, about drill and practice games. Uh, and and then the real learning, of course, is, uh, you know, again, sort of making the argument that uh, while drill and practice or, or multiplication tables are, are maybe foundational to your ability to function as a human being, um, that the pinnacle of learning looks a lot more like uh, the types of things that you would do in the real world outside of school to be a successful human being, mm-hmm. right? So, again, I guess back to that authenticity it's like what sorts of experiences can we deliver um, that will allow you to learn things that will matter beyond the test beyond the classroom the things that will allow you to you know think and function in the 21st century Uh, and so you know for me when i think about real games real learning i think i think that uh, a lot of times when people set out to accomplish both and with all due respect to everybody who's ever tried to make a learning game, it's very difficult. Most, you know, games that are just designed to be entertaining are not so great, and that's the only objective that they have, right? It's very difficult to do both. Um, but yeah, with all, all due respect for, for people who try to do both, um, a lot of times there is a compromise in one direction or the other, right? So if, you, if you're going to make a game that is a good learning tool, oftentimes they compromise on the gameplay or vice versa. And so our objective, and it's aspirational, and we certainly don't always succeed, is to, is to not have that be a compromise, right? To, right. to make a game that stands uh, alone as a, as a successful learning tool and also stands on its own as a successful game. Yep. Yeah, there's like three three types of decisions you can say like well this is a decision that sacrifices gameplay to increase learning objective fidelity this is a decision that increases learning objective fidelity but sacrifices gameplay but then there's the third choice where it's the win-win you're like oh this makes the game better (laughs) and it's better for the learning objective and that that goes more smoothly uh if you uh well, if you think about it a lot, uh, but it also goes more smoothly if you come out of the gate honestly believing that the learning objective has a heart and a core that's fun, that that knowledge itself is empowering and wonderful and exciting, and that there's a way to turn becoming better at a thing into an adventure. Um, and so if you can get on that page, you can start making those decisions that uh, wind up being a win-win over and over Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll still make plenty of decisions that go in the either two directions because you're making a thing and that's hard but uh, our goal is to do the middle path mm. uh, as much as possible
So, you know, when we think about what constitutes a learning game or a or a playful experience, perhaps, mm-hmm. how do we define that? And how, how have we kind of broadened our horizons in terms of like what we're willing to work on, you know, mm-hmm. as reflected by the current mission statement? Because I know previously the mission statement had been something along the lines of being the world dominant learning game studio right, yes. that, uh, <laughs> well for a while yeah we were briefly a, a boot stamping on the face of humanity forever that was a, exactly. that was a bad week yeah but <laughs> uh i'm glad we pivoted out of that um honestly i think uh it, actually if you just sort of look at the changes to the mission like you know learning games that don't suck mm-hmm. real games that real learning mm-hmm. uh and oh man all right what you're gonna see you're this is the test if i can remember all the words exactly right so <laughs> Uh, playful experiences that improve people's lives. You got it. Yes, that's it. New All car. Right. Yeah. yeah. New car. All right. So, <laughs> so that's the new uh, the new mission. I think when we started, we had something to prove, right? Which I think is a good thing for a business to have. We were we were uh, young roustabouts who were had our dander up about. <laughs> the the fact that there was all this great research about how to make great learning games, but we were awash in bad learning games. There, there were pamphlets. There were pamphlets. There was there were berets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we came out of the gate, but we were honestly, you know, we were inside, and our perspective was inside the games learning research community, and we're like, we need to prove this to the games and learning community that this is doable because, mm-hmm. like, we're we're talking about, let's do it. Um. And I think, honestly, just our perspective has gone from less inward um, from that very beginning uh, to being like, let's take, you know, let's make learning games that don't suck to Mm -hmm. like, well, okay, we're about authentic gameplay, but also authentic pedagogy. Mm. Um, And now, now we're saying like, we carry the spirit of play and but our real mission is having a positive impact on the people who play what we make like the change uh so we're now very much more looking outward mm. uh and looking at the impact of what we do and the pursuit of that impact has changed our opinions about what is the best possible project like the, the mission of the of the organizations we work with and the impact and outreach of each project is, has ro- risen in importance and uh, the how gamey it is is less essential. I mean, we still obviously, we still make games. It's not where, but it used to be how gamey is it was the first question we'd ask. Like, can <laughs> we game, can we add more game? Can we jam a game inside here or some harder? Right. And uh, now it's like, well, we've, we understand the tools of constructing games. Mm-hmm. Um can we use those tools to create a successful, playful experience that improves someone's life? And, and I would add to that too that I think so long as so long as the fixation is on learning, you have to define what learning is, and and that's very contentious, right? Because learning means very different things to different people. I would argue that a lot of what goes on in in, in contemporary schools um, would not should not be billed as learning. Mm-hmm. Right. It's unless you are an autodidact, um, you're going to struggle with a lot of a lot of the teaching methodologies, even in contemporary schools, because they're outmoded. Uh, you know, there are a number of schools, uh, many of which we have visited uh, in the process of trying to understand what makes for good educational experiences. 
that are trying new and exciting things. Project-based learning is something that we're particularly excited about, and we consider a cousin to game-based learning. Um, but you know, I think the the point is uh, what qualifies as learning is contentious, but it's it's hard to argue with. Uh, the goal of improving somebody's life. So you could argue about whether a particular uh, whether a particular instrument has a positive learning outcome or not, mm-hmm. depending on how rigorously you define learning or or what you think the purpose of learning is or what you think the purpose of school is in the 21st century. Um, and so from our perspective, if you just step back and you say, well, d- did this experience improve the person's life um, through the learning mechanism that we built? then it doesn't really matter whether or not you're learning for a test or you're learning for something beyond the walls of the school. Uh, you have, you've helped the person accomplish something that is important to them, and therefore uh, you have accomplished your mission. Oh! Yeah. What's that sound? I don't know that sound. Um, I know that sound. I was going to say, Dan White's our number one fan. fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to Contronym Corner. Right that weekly segment where we look at contronyms and decide if they're good yes <laughs> or not yes <laughs> on a complex matrix of decisions yes exactly yeah. this uh, this one might be a little controversial yeah but i like it mm. presently presently mm-hmm huh okay so Just let that there's let that land first i was like well there's something that's happening now and then there's something happening with a gift but that's not true <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, what is the other uh, you can say i will be there presently like in a couple minutes oh as in soon yes, yes. but not now exactly yeah. mm-hmm. but you can also say it to me now These, yeah, li- this is contradictory i mean th- those are that's a pretty clean contronym if you ask me it's two completely fundamentally different understandings of time. Yeah, I like to tell people that I'll be there in a saint's whisper. That's that's my way that's to like weird. say I'll be there soon because people are like, "What the hell? Why not a demon's whisper?" I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I mean, yes, it's a contronym, but the context of the sentence matters. Like, and I feel like that saves it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's because if you say I am presently here, it's clear that you're there at that very moment right you say i will be just by saying will yeah you know it's not actually happening in the current Mm -hmm. moment all right so guest rating dan white how many how many stars does that contronym get out of Mm. out of five out of five let's just say five let's say all right that's a a lockdown quantifier four give it a four all right yeah four to five stars yeah Yeah. that's 80 percent. is there any sentence that we can think of that makes it ambiguous because like White pointed out, the will be versus, you know, the, the future or present tense. Right. So can you think of a sentence that evades a tense? You could, you could say, mm-hmm. you could just answer, presently. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you can't yeah. top that. That's it. Mm. Oh, oh. Huh? you could say, I'm presently arriving. Um, right? Oof. Mm-hmm. Right, so you could be informing someone that I'm 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 presently arriving. I'll be there soon. Or as you're walking through the door, <laughs> I'm presently arriving. I'm here. Yeah, this is happening. <laughs> All right, so that's good. That All makes right. it that that yeah. makes it contrary me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, contralicious. That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, that's it. This has been a very special episode <laughs> of the Film and Games Podcast. Yeah. More Dan's than... Is it over already? It yeah, over, I know, actually. right? It goes fast. It does go fast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, White. That was super fun. 
Thanks for listening to the Film and Games Podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and well-informed, accurate observations about sports and such, subscribe today on Stitcher or iTunes. Thank you.